Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the Sales Leaders Playbook. Today, we welcome Richard Rivera. Richard has taken sales leadership roles at Medallia, Fuse, Dialapad, and Monitrate. He is currently the CRO at Vibes, a growing presence in the MarTech world, trailblazing innovation in mobile technology. In this episode, we discover how Richard was able to transition from a number one sales rep everywhere he went to a phenomenal sales leader. This is his playbook. series the 33 CXOs we investigate one of the greatest success stories in the history of software sales. 33 CXOs learnt the playbook from one man John McMahon a legacy which stretches back to the late 90s at a company called PTC. They were later reunited at Blade Logic which was acquired by BMC. What happened next was truly remarkable. These CXOs went on to become the most prolific sales leaders in the software industry. They've raised over 22 billion in VC funding. They contribute to 4% of software turnover globally, 26 unicorns, eight decacorns, and the companies they drive have a combined valuation of 230 billion. At Hunters and Unicorn, we're revealing their playbook. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host, Oli Kune. Hey, everyone. And it's an absolute honour to be joined today by Richard Rivera. Richard, welcome to the show. Hey, fellas. How you doing? All very good. Welcome to the show, Richard. Great to have you on it. No, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. So, Richard... In the way of an introduction, you've taken multiple CRO positions, including Monotate and Dialapad, having also taken senior sales roles at companies such as Medallia and BMC. You are, of course, one of the 33 CXOs that are obviously that made the poster and made the list. And your current role is CRO at Vibes. Now, we normally at this point start at the beginning but actually want to find out a little bit more about your mission at Vibes. If you could just tell us a little bit about what your role is and a little bit about the mission. No, yeah. And again, I just appreciate it, guys. I appreciate you taking time to, to spend with me and appreciate what you're doing. I love the pre-sales. I uh, love the pre-sales series. I mean, I don't know if guys told you this, but I mean, the secret weapon of, of Blade Logic was absolutely uh, the pre-sales team. Uh, and I know my guys uh, were the absolute A team. So you're doing great stuff. And, and uh, thanks for letting me be a part of it. No, it, you know, Vibes, I'm Chief Revenue Officer. Uh, and, you know, it, it really aligns to where um, my fulfillment is, which is really driving more of the full go-to-market and, and excellence across it. So I run marketing sales and services. And, um, you know, as far as who Vibes is, I mean, it's very similar uh, to uh, where I've been before. And, and that's, that's incredibly important. I always tell folks when you take leadership roles, you got to set yourself up for success and putting yourself in a situation where you mitigate as much risk as you can. And for me, you know, I like to go, uh, I only go to enterprise, probably a lot of the folks that you interview, I don't know if you've noticed, but you don't see many 
that are leading heavily SMB mid-market uh, products. Why? Because, you know, enterprise is a tough, it's a tough playbook to go get in and, and um, build pipeline and, and, and control that more complex cell. So vibes like Blade Logic, like Medallia, like BMC, uh, you know, a platform. Uh, so uh, we're the Gartner leader in mobile engagement uh, and on the marketing and loyalty side and e-commerce side of what big enterprise brands do, um, they're all trying to directly uh, engage uh, over time, persistently, pervasively with consumers. You know, the, the, the consumers have so many options today. So whether it's a top five automaker, a top 10 retailer, you know, financial services, they all have their different use cases of where they're trying to engage with a consumer. So, you know, Vibes is the lever, leader on the mobile side of things. Uh, so what does that mean? Texting, if you've ever gotten a text incentivizing you uh, uh, to get into a program uh, based on an offer or discount, if you've ever gotten updates on your rewards and wanting those rewards and those points to go into your digital wallet, that whole thing, mobile apps uh, uh, have so much opportunity for automation to get people active once they're in the app. So push notifications and app inbox. And so the point of a platform is, you know, all of those things could be delivered through point tools. Um, uh, they could be delivered through kind of big hubs where, you know, all the functions are good enough, but not really what enterprises need to scale uh, and certainly do it internationally. So that's what Vibes is. It's a platform, unified platform, uh, single um, uh, set of code for all of these uh, different capabilities uh, for engaging with consumers on mobile devices. Uh, and uh, that's that inflection point is because email, email just isn't the main channel in our lives anymore. Um, so five-year-old software company, uh, basically, but a 20-year-old business. And so they've transformed from a managed services to a, a software company. And so the ability to take that company to the next level, which is probably taking it from 60 to 200 million and, and, and getting the valuation up there is essentially my, my mission. And um, we're having a blast. So. Which is really, really interesting. You've, you obviously mentioned one of your components to, I suppose, a, a, a job criteria. And it's always quite interesting to listen to this. Um, now, why did you choose Vibes? How did it come about? You know, is it investment? Is it the VC? Is it the board? What, what, might, what made it special? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think the first, uh, the first objective in your career, uh, should, certainly when you get to a position where you have a lot of opportunities, is to really invest in self-awareness. And for me, it was clearly large enterprise, uh, high cost platforms was kind of foundational for me. But the other is, you know, I, I'm, I'm a growth uh, leader. Uh, you hire me, a board brings me on when the company is really ready for hyper growth. What I learned uh, a couple of uh, roles ago was that there's actually more than one type of growth company. I mean, like a lot of the folks you're talking to, I grew up in the venture capital growth, uh, you know, realm of companies, you know, five, 10 years in, maybe 20, 30 million in revenue. And that's, that was your idea of growth. Uh, and I discovered there's a second type of growth company, uh, which I call the, you know, the company who built the Ferrari when the market needed a Chevy, you know, and, uh, and, and all that really matters is just as long as that product is, is really continuing to disrupt um, and bring incremental value and change to the mission of those buyers, 
than if the market is going through an inflection point, some type of tipping point that says this is the time for it to grow, then those companies can certainly grow at high growth rates as well. They, they all have their, uh, you know, any company, but certainly based on stage, all companies have their, you know, opportunities and challenges. For me, a company like Vibes, very, very similar to Monetate, um, is something where there's a lot of uh, knowns. There's a lot, not a lot of unknowns. We're already a Gartner leader a couple of times. We got huge customer spending, you know, two, three million a year. They were new, they're happy, uh, and, and the market has been legitimized. It's still early though, you know? And so when I see something like that, um, uh, all, I, all I ask is for the objectives of growth, uh, are they all within my control? You know, does the product need to develop something new or does something major need to be fixed that doesn't have anything to do with me? So I saw vibes and I saw, you know, one, I've done it in this industry before in uh, consumer engagement feedback medallia. We had a four and a half billion dollar IPO last year. I was a, I was a small part of that big journey uh, by Scott and Davis and, and Dave Fougere and a lot of really uh, impressive uh, folks. Um, and then, you know, we got Monetate sold last year, uh, which is in the marketing automation space. So, you know, I knew, I knew, I knew the buyer, you know, I've, I've sat with CMOs and marketing and loyalty leaders all around the world uh, for a few years. And I know, I know what matters to them. And, um, and the leadership team is just fantastic. And the culture is great. And so, you know, I could recruit to this. John taught me a long time ago, look, you got to be able to recruit talent. And if you can't recruit talent, then everything, you know, nothing else really matters. So I can recruit to this. It's, it's, uh, it's a major inflection point in, in that phone. See, this phone used to be a tool in our life, and now it is a component of our lifestyle. It's an intimate part of our lives, unfortunately. And so as much as we can engage with a consumer on that phone, you know, it's all goodness. So I, I enjoy it. And, um, and uh, it has afforded me the ability to kind of lean into kind of the second way I'd, I'd answer that, which is kind of my purpose, what fulfills me. A few years ago, I, I, I kind of wanted to take a break, start my own consulting firm and advise. And, and um, uh, I had a great mentor, as I have throughout my whole life, John Kaplan, who I think you guys have spent some time with. Mm. Um, and as John and I were talking, you know, as he always does, um, he, you know, he laid it out real simple for me. John and I have always had a lot in common in terms of faith and family and, and sales excellence. And he said, look, brother, you know, you've got to find your purpose. You got to find what fulfills you. And for me, it was people development, teaching. I've been a teacher since I was a teenager and it was operational excellence. And so I kind of started transitioning just from sales excellence into operational excellence uh, probably around my time at Fuse. And, and so I look at opportunities that enable me to lean into what drives uh, my uh, passion and fulfillment. And, you know, Vibes is an, an awesome one for me. So um, no, no regrets, having, having a blast. Amazing. And that must say is probably one of the best John Kaplan impressions I've heard to date. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So Are we that, crushing and that, it. And that's a firm. Yeah. That's a firm where he he and Grant get a lot of get a lot of praise. You know, uh, there's a guy named Dave there who's amazing. So, you know, I always tell this story. So in 2004 or five or six, I can't remember, but uh we all at Blade Logic, I was a rep, we were all we were the first class of what is now command of the message. Yeah. And so, you know, John needed help. He trusted Kaplan and um and Grant to build it, and they built it for us, uh, and, and it just knocked it out of the park from the very beginning. And I can't say it's that much different today than it was back then. 
Yeah. And it was a transformational moment uh, for me personally. And then John and I just kind of formed that relationship for the last 15 years. And again, there's a lot of relatability there between us, um, but a wonderful man as mm. well as a, a, a leader, you know. Yeah, we've had him on the show and yeah, the way in which he talked about his four, his, his four quadrants is just incredible um he just articulates it so well um which you would expect right <laughs> but but yeah no it was, it was really really valuable and um, we had some great great feedback from that so taking it back um obviously we always as simon said normally start at this point but but can you tell us a little bit about your entry into software sales but i think before we do that let's talk about where you started at university and uh, when you finished university and, and then how you transitioned into software sales. Sure. I mean, I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. You know, I mean, I was, I was an only child of a single mother uh, teacher. And so I, I thought at the time I didn't want to be a teacher um, because I'd see her come uh, home from inner city schools in Houston and um, really surviving the day. I mean, in sales, we talk about surviving the quarter. I mean, we were, she was surviving the day and we were surviving the month. So the last thing I want to do is be a teacher. Um, in fact, you know, I don't know if you guys heard about, yeah, I'm sure you did, George Floyd here um, uh, who, you know, uh, was killed in, in Minneapolis this year. Uh, well, she taught at his school when George was, you know, there at school. Um, and so that, that environment uh, was what I was around. And so I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I had, you know, academic and athletic scholarships and I took, uh, you know, I went down the track path and I was a shot in discus throwers, was a lot bigger back then. Uh, but uh, Texas A&M was, you know, a good home for me. And um, unfortunately, pre-med just wasn't working out, you know, um, and, it, and, it, and it, whether it was my learning disability or, or, or what, I just couldn't, I couldn't figure it out academically. So um, I decided to be a teacher and I coached football and uh, I started coaching as, a, as an undergrad. There's a program we had where we could go into schools when I was done competing and, um, and I just embraced it. For me, it was all about excellence. I can't stand mediocrity my whole life. I just had a distaste for it. So I was all in, man. I was, uh, uh, you know, doing clinics all over the country with NFL teams and, and college teams. I was networked and I was on this path. I was a defense coordinator at a 5A football school, uh, a 5A school in, high, in Texas. I thought that that's what I was going to do, man. And so um, I just got to a point where, it wasn't the money. It was the lifestyle. You know, I never had a family, never knew my dad, never had brothers and sisters. And so I just kind of continued to feel alone in that profession. And it's like, I love football, but I don't love it that much, you know? So I, um, I had a friend uh, who was doing really well in sales and I saw, and I went to his house and he had this big ass house with a big gate and I'm going on a football clinic in Dallas. And I, and I go through this gate to stay with them. And I'm like, dude, what do you do? Like, how do you afford this mansion? I mean, I was making 42 grand a year, baby. I was, I was, I was doing well and coaching, you know? And uh, he's like, look, man, I'm in tech sales at this company called PeopleSoft. And I think you could do really well. You're highly competitive, highly intelligent. You know how to teach. And basically we're going in there and we're teaching. And he taught me ERP. And I'm like, wow, that makes sense to me. And um, like a week later, I, I uh, resigned and I looked for jobs and I got started, um, actually started in printing sales. Uh, one of the things McMahon actually 
liked. And I'm like, I don't know why you like that, but it was, you know, it was hard. Um, and, uh, and took a big pay cut, pay cut, you know, uh, from 42 grand to go get into sales. But I was committed and um, I knew that I would, you know, I knew that I could do well if, if, uh, if I found the right, um, you know, direction. Uh, and I got into tech sales and um, what I learned was the same thing I learned in coaching and as an athlete, you, you, you know, you never really optimize your potential uh, without great leadership. That is still the cornerstone of my belief system, system today, my family and my career. And, um, you know, I, I, I just wasn't having the consistent success because I never had really great leadership. I found my way to a consulting firm. We sold identity and security and ERP consulting. It's called uh, CPSG, Consultant's Choice. And um, I, I found my first mentor, a guy named Brad Clark, and he taught me about qualification and pipeline generation and all this kind of rigor that was new to me. And I thrived and I thought I was doing great. Um, then all of a sudden I got a, um, I got a call from a buddy who says, look, there's another Aggie that Texas A&M, you know, where I went to college were, were the Aggies and that we have a big network. And so an Aggie called me and introduced me to somebody and said, uh, Hey man, I just started this company blade logic. And I heard great things about you. Heard you're the number one rep, blah, blah, blah. And I met, met with him, wasn't super interested in, in, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and I, and I went home and I um, basically decided I wasn't going to take the follow-up interview. And uh, a very close friend at the time said, this will be the mistake of your life. Why would you never want to at least see what opportunities are in front of you? Because um, I was making plenty of money at the time. I was making 150 grand a year, you know. I thought I was loaded compared to being a football coach. And so I decided to go meet this guy, John McMahon, at the Marriott at the Intercontinental Airport in Houston, 15 minute interview changed my life. And here I am on this podcast with you guys. So. Wow. And so, so the interview itself, we've obviously heard some great interviews. We've heard about the stare. Can you remember much about that first interview? And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I've heard all the stories, you know, uh, Cranny and I, Mark Cranny and I went to dinner one time and we were talking about his story and it was a McMahon story. I'd say my, my, my experience is, you know, the opposite of that. You know, you've, you've heard a lot of these things, I'm sure already. Um, you know, John knows what he's looking for. I looked him right in the eye and I, and, and I have, I just have a thirst to learn from, from people. And um, I learned from the moment we started that interview, I could tell how he felt about that manager in the room who was recruiting me and that manager didn't stay with us very long. I could tell how he felt about himself. I could tell how he felt about that company. Uh, and the opportunity. And I could tell how he felt about me. And um, he asked me a couple of questions of what mattered most to me. And I told him, and then he sold me on those things that mattered to me. And if you, you know, if you talk to people who are really great recruiters, you know, Cedric Pesch or Andy Byron, we focus on what matters to you and we, and we align ourselves to you. And um, we all learn that from John, you know, it's great. And uh, like I said, 15 minutes in, I got a job offer and went to work. So I did, you know, wow. it was a great experience. Yeah, it, it seems to me, um, Richard, that one, one of the things that I'm kind of hearing quite a lot of, you, you seem to be an all-in kind of guy, right? There's no, there's no kind of dithering. There's no kind of halfway house. You're either all-in or you're not. Do you think that's one of the things that really kind of 
has helped you make success in, in, in everything that you've done? And is that also part of the reason why <clears throat> John McMahon obviously selected you and, and, and saw that, that, that in you when he, he chose to, to give you that offer? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never really thought about that term all in other than, you know, I certainly learned at a very young age the power of commitment. And, the, the, and when I say the power of it, I mean the energy that it brings and what it drives you. There's a phenomenal book called Positive Intelligence by Professor Stanford. And, and you know, when he talks about PQ, it's about the power of the mind to either have disruptive thoughts and judges that slow you down or the power of the mind to really drive you. And so when you're, when you're, when you're not committed to something, it, inherently your habits and behaviors will be uncommitted and they will slow down and they won't go as fast. And I grew up in a football player. And so when you slow down in football is when you got hurt, you know, and I learned that from football coaches and I never got hurt. You know, um, my mother um, drove this statement as a strong Christian woman. She said it all the time. It's like, don't do anything half ass. If you can do it half ass, don't don't do it. You know, and uh, and, you know, it resonated with me. I mean, look, man, I grew up in a survival culture. I mean, my school every day, I felt scared, you know, a little bit my school, she was a little scared every day she went to teach. And so we didn't have, you know, we didn't have any money. And so you just kind of grow up that way. And so it kind of leans to the things that I look for in sales and any type of performers, that resiliency, you got to see evidence of it. Um, But most of the time people hold back. They're not all in. They're not, they're not, in other words, committed I usually look to leadership and, you know, somebody hasn't helped me understand the purpose of why I should be all in. Um, and so I've just had really great leaders around me that have given me that purpose. And, and yeah, I, uh, I get, I get all in no, nothing half ass. Uh, and, um, and, and, and it and enables you to also realize that in order to do that, you kind of have to eliminate the noise. You know, there, there's just a lot of stuff that you could do in a given day and just eliminate the noise, be very mission driven, you know, to, and, and be all in, I guess. So, yeah, I look for that when I hire. What do you mean by eliminate the noise? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, you've got so many choices in a given workday. And for me, it's about, you know, as a leader, it's about, you know, with my, with my leadership team, we're trying to win the week. So we got five days to really accomplish um, uh, what we needed to do this week, which was we take last week and there's, um, you know, uh, good things and there's uh, uh, opportunities and we focus on fixing those opportunities this week. And um, those five days go by real quick. And even when you think about a given day, I mean, look how busy you guys are. You're recruiting for cybersecurity companies. You're doing 15 podcasts, you know, you're studying psychology on your off time and you probably have families. I mean, so anything that really detracts from the mission. So, you know, when you're mission oriented, meaning I am focused on this, this uh, objective and this outcome, then you have to ask yourself, you know, I've got a choice here. It, will this enhance the mission? or take me away from it. And if it takes you away from the mission, it just means it's noise. It doesn't mean it's not important. It just means it, it, it causes you when you're mission driven, it forces you to be thoughtful of how important is this to make an impact on what I got to get done here in Texas. You know, we, we provide really great benefits for former military. And so we've got a lot of, 
a lot of folks here, a lot of special forces folks here in Austin. And I'm blessed enough to have a few buddies that were SEALs and, you know, um, and, uh, you know, JSOC and all that kind of thing. So when we hang out, you know, they tell stories of like when they're flying in, uh, in a helicopter with their unit and, you know, they're about to get dropped into chaos. There's going to be a lot of stuff going down. And so they have to be very focused on the mission. Everything's noise. And I've got rules that help me make decisions in the minute, like medic that simplify things for me. And, um, we just, we're in and out on the mission. And if anything gets foobar that we can't accomplish the mission, that's what tells us we got to get out. And so, I try to I try to drive the same thing home on my executive teams, helping them understand what what noise is and all, all the way down to reps and CSMs. And it usually disarms people and helps people relax. You know, you don't have to do as much. You just have to make more impact. So that's that's uh, something I learned early on. Um, uh, luckily. Yeah. I suppose the effects of that are that you average 237 percent above your quota. At Blade Logic, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, leadership, coaching. I mean, I didn't, you know, look, man. I had, I think, uh, five managers in four years, you know, uh, or or four managers in three years actually at Blade Logic, and so um, I knew the importance of leadership from the time I set foot on a football field at eight years old, and uh, because I didn't have a dad, you know, so I kind of knew. Hey man, if this guy's investing in me and he's teaching me something incremental, then how lucky am I? So for me, I, I raised my hand a lot. And so if I didn't have a manager, my manager to get me what I needed, I just pick up the phone and call John and, um, you know, uh, he'd be in a cab in, in Italy and be like, <laughs> Hey, what's up, Rich? Hey, I need, I need you, man. I got a deal. And it's, I think I got a business case. I think I got a champion. I need to know what to do next. Got it. Call you back in 15 minutes. Oh. And he called me back in about 14 minutes and, um, um, and it would be quick, but he'd ask me laser focused questions. I'd get laser focused answers. I'd walk away from that call with a plan. And so um, when he couldn't, he'd assign a manager to me. He, he assigned Scott Davis to me and I didn't even report to Scott um, and Scott, you know, wasn't going to make a dime off of me. And, and um, Scott was mission driven and um and that, that enabled me to scale. So that was a big part of my success. But um, I think the other thing at Blade, at Blade Logic <clears throat> was um, I, I wasn't then and nor am I now a technologist. I mean, I, you know, I was the last guy to move from cassettes to CDs, from CDs to <laughs> whatever they have now. And um, I'm just not that into it. I'm like the opposite of Mark Musselman, you know. And um, I think for me, it was leaning into what I do. I came from football. I came from a teaching background. And so I would just teach uh, and I would really pay attention to the individuals that I was working with. And I, I got introduced to this concept of a champion more than anything. And uh, I knew that champion had to have criteria that aligned to my unique value proposition and differentiation. And so I just kind of knew early on that it was about selling to people. And so, um, biggest champion in my career, this dude named Cole Crawford at um, Dell, who, you know, gave me that first $500,000 commission check that changed my life. I mean, he's now Mark Musselman's boss. He started Vapor.io. So I was just surrounded by really smart people. Uh, and I said, I'm going to find the smart people and connect to them. And so I just created, I tried to create emotional and intellectual connections with people. And they were so smart. They knew why my technology was so good. Um, and that was, 
that's kind of how, you know, I focus, but look, man, I was in survival mode. I had over a hundred thousand dollars credit card debt at the time. And I mean, for whatever reason, it just, just wasn't working during my career. And so to be able to like have something drives you and, and that's what I look for. I look for something driving somebody right now. Are they hungry right now? Um, not five years ago. Um, and so I was hungry, man. And so I found a way, even though I wasn't the best salesperson on the planet and certainly not the best one in that sales force. Um, you know, I just found a way to survive. And for me, it was connecting with the humans that I was selling to, you know, that was kind of how I did it. You say, sorry, just I just want to rewind on what you just that that final statement that you just said. You said that you're not the best salesperson, and yet 237 above quota. And then we're going to go into BMC in a minute. But you were back to back global head, well, global best performing rep, back to back number one rep globally over 370 percent of your number. So, what, what what do you mean when you say? I wasn't the best sales guy when clearly you're having, you're putting the best numbers up on the board. You know, I was a top performer in the company, um, you know, three times, but you, you know, there's no way you're going to convince me I was a better seller than, uh, you know, Marty Cardi, um, uh, who was kind of a legend when we got to be in Blade Logic or, or Mark or, uh, you know, uh, Amy Gustafson. Um, a lot of those people that were doing, great, great things. I was just learning from them. Jeremy Duggan uh, in, in, is just a master. Uh, and, um, you know, I was around all those people and I loved it, man. I just, I just, I was usually the quietest guy. I'm pretty introverted. I was usually the quietest guy at sales trainings and, and, and um, kickoffs because I just was so amazed. Um, thing about John McMahon is, you know, a lot of executives can deliver, you know, one or two things of value to you. John, actually, you bring him on a sales call and you're not going to find a better salesman on the sales call, you know, and that, that meant a lot to me. I didn't just want to be an operational leader. I wanted to be the best salesperson in the company. So if you think you're the best of something, you're probably never really going to get better. And, um, and you're, you're probably never going to uh, be as great as you think you are. So it's, I wouldn't say it's modesty. I think it's just reality. I mean, there were just uh, elite sellers. I just happened to perform at a high level. Um, and, um, and I'm continuing to learn from, uh, the people I, you know, that work for me and the people of the, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, I interview. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of elite sellers I've been around. My wife is top 5% seller in biotech. Uh, I listen to her and I coach her, you know, I try to coach her. I've worked with her, you know, sales management team, you know, she's just damn good. You know, she does things that I can't do. And um, I think, you know, there's a difference between, John told me a long time ago, there's a difference between potential and performance. And so for me, it's not about being the best. It's about putting money in, in your savings account and performing. And so um, I just I just find a way, you know. So, so in terms of what, what did you do to compensate for that natural flair? How were you able to make sure that you could compete and put that money in that savings account? Well, I, you know, I'd only sold for probably about five years before I got to Blade Logic. I was a football coach until I was 30, basically. So um, I focused on champions. And uh, if I built champions and, and, you know, we talk about 
power and influence, access to the economic buyer, willing to sell first when you're not there. You know, I, I was focused on really smart people. Like I could find smart people who, were, who had power and influence and smart people who, who had access to the EB. Uh, so I, you know, I focused on building them into champions and it was because of my, um, you know, lack of experience and knowledge about technology. I'll never forget my interview with John McMahon. I mean, I didn't know what a server was. Okay. Uh, uh, going into the interview and uh, never heard of it. I was a server in college. I was a really good waiter. Um, well, he starts talking about their differentiators, configuration object dictionary and, you know, closed loop compliance. And I'm like, configuration, what? <laughs> you know, I was like, I didn't. <laughs> so I was like, what is an object? And he explains to me what an object was. And I got more confused. And I, you know, so that's, you know, that's certainly changed over the years. I've, 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 intentionally been in a lot of different domains. I've been in cybersecurity, IT, marketing, social, and um, communications. And so, you know, I, I learned quickly, but I didn't have a passion for it. And I felt like I was so much further behind than the other. So I just focused on people building champions that, and at the end of the day, the simplicity of that was something I really connected with because we tend to overcomplicate things for our sales force. You need, you need, you know, you need a value pyramid, you need a medic, you know, you need uh, your command of the message. There's a lot of things we throw at reps. And so for me, I was overwhelmed and I didn't have a great manager. And so I just focused on champions. That's basically what I did. Pipeline generation and champions. And the most proud thing, I, I think if I look back to my selling days is, yeah, I was a top performer uh, for the year, but I also hit my quarter, quarter after quarter after quarter. I wasn't just doing one big pop. The reason I made money, a lot of money, was because I would have a big pop, but I also hit my number during the quarters. Um, and that gets you into big accelerators. So I just focus on champions. That's kind of what I still focus on, basically. Well, that simplicity element is actually a playbook element of yours. It's it's something that you know you you you've you seem to have taken. Did you grasp that at Blade Logic? out of necessity for yourself and it's kind of almost become you know a core pillar of your playbook to really help i suppose um give your reps the tools that they need to also survive and really how you can how you can really break things down and you, you talk about incremental is that what you're really referring to yeah exactly i mean um uh, I went into management finally at BMC and I had to sit down with my um, manager at the time, this guy, Kelly, Kelly Connery, who's also from PTC. And I said, Kelly, you know, what do you want me to do? He's like, look, you just need to teach these people to do what you did and um, figure that out. <laughs> and uh, and um, <laughs> that was so hard for me to really think through, well, what was I doing? And and to simplify the complexity of all the things that you do in a given in a given quarter or work week. And so, you know, I struggled with that a while. I would hit my numbers in management, but it was always by a big pop here, a big deal here, because um, that's what I was good at. And I wasn't a great leader. And then I started learning about this concept of productivity. You've got a bunch of people that the business is investing in. And so how do you get that return on that investment in a low risk way? Meaning, you know, the majority of those people are hitting uh, their number and that's totally different than hitting your number as a manager. You could hit it through doing one on a, on a $8 million, $8 million number. You can do one $10 million deal. Uh, you know, we did that my whole career. So, you know, piece of cake. Well, that's not being a productivity leader. 
So it was a real challenge for me. Um, certainly wasn't great at it at, at Medallia. My first kind of second line leadership role when, when Dan Fougere and I started the same day to kind of go build that out. You know, Dan was this multi-year manager. He'd been a second line manager. Kind of just looked like he knew what he's doing. I felt like I was figuring it out every day. And, um, and I struggled. So, you know, I go to Fuse. I felt that felt like a good move uh, for my career. There's just certain things that didn't, you know, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't a great uh, feeling at, at Medallia about kind of um, my fulfillment and it was showing in, in my frustrations. And so I just felt so good about Fuse and um, John and Andy Byron gave me a ring there. And, and I mean, it was just a phenomenal experience. Awesome in every way. And I, and I was thriving. The reason I was thriving is I figured out productivity. You know, Andy and I were sitting at this Italian cafe. We used to, uh, we used to go to uh, frequently and just have dinner and have a glass of wine. And we started talking about productivity. We started talking about, by this time, we're getting up to hundred reps. I was responsible in addition to sell, sales leadership. I was responsible for training the whole global workforce as we were bringing them in. And we were just talking about how, you know, it kind of feels like we're overcomplicating things for them. There's so much that they have on their plate and you and that manifests on a sales call. If you think about our psychology, what do we do when we are uncertain? What do we, what do we do when, when we lack preparation and when we're unconfident? Do we speed up or do we slow down? Right. That's usually, you, you, you know, if, if I threw you into, you know, uh, into a situation that was new to you, would you, head forward or would you kind of slow down and pause? I think historically I would have just sped up, but (laughs) yeah, over time I've learned, I think maturity has allowed me to kind of slow down and try and wait for an answer to come in and an intervention to come in, I suppose. Yeah, you're right. It's the maturity. The longer, you know, my kids, we just went on a ski trip. My five-year-old twins just go straight down a blue, straight down. They're flying, super dangerous. But as you mature and you learn more about your risks and more reasons why something's not going to work out, our natural survival instincts are to slow down. And that's what was happening on sales calls. And by the way, leaders never really know what's going on in the field unless they get in the field. Abraham Lincoln was a great leader because he led from the front. He got into the battlefield. And when you see it and observe it, you realize you got a problem. Andy and I are both lead from the front guys. We were going on sales calls and we were just comparing notes that, man, these reps are slowing down. They're stuttering. They're not, you know, they're hesitant and it's causing confusion and uncertainty with the buyers. And so I made a commitment. We were going to simplify and we were going to focus on less. And so then my journey was just figuring out what do you focus on? And um, I went back to, you know, why does a buyer take a meeting with you? You know, let's just focus on that. What makes them stop, look and listen, you know, and then engage with you when you're, when you're on a meeting, what makes them, what makes them become a champion? Like we all want a champion. Well, what makes somebody become a champion? Well, first, what we learned, what I learned is I studied more. It's like you've got to get emotionally connected to something before you can get a, ever get intellectually connected to something. So how do you get emotionally connected to a technology product? What does it do for you? What is it? What problems does it solve? You know, so, you know, the bottom line is, again, eliminating the noise. What really makes an impact? And so separating kind of non-negotiable, non-negotiable process from these are tools that you have at your disposal. And what I want you to do is focus on this one thing. 
And then that one thing as a Salesforce level is, is the best practice of, of simplifying and driving productivity. But then at an individual contributor level or me leading a manager or a second line, it's what one thing can they work on right now? What one thing will make the biggest impact for them? And so as I started to figure out uh, at a Salesforce level or at an individual level, getting down to the one or two things that really made the impact and just focusing on that for a quarter or with a rep, just focusing on one thing for a quarter uh, or say, I, I realize I would see, in, in, you know, incremental improvement. And uh, it's all about driving incremental growth. And then before you know it, you look back and you've just created a billion dollar company. Um, so, you know, that, that's the way I've tried to approach it, you know. So three, three years um, at Blade Logic um, and then on to BMC. So obviously you saw through the IPO and then saw through the acquisition by BMC. Um, talk to us about that transition from, you know, IPOing into um, acquisition and then being part of a huge company like BMC. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I was ignorant, man. I still didn't know what I didn't know about all this. So I was like drinking the Kool-Aid of Blade Logic, man. I was <laughs> surrounded by, I was surrounded by people who were smarter uh, than me and great, you know, great leadership. And we were thriving. I mean, our growth rates, the money I was making, the money my peers were making, which which was one thing at Blade Logic. You're always very aware of how everybody else was performing, and and so to be in that environment, how, how incredible is that? Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, 8 a.m. in the morning, you know, you're having a cup of coffee and you get an email from Dave that we've been um, acquired. And it was a real bummer. Uh, it was disappointing. And um, my next door neighbor uh, happened to work at BMC and, and he was working there during a time when the stock was really in the tank. Uh, BMC and CA were struggling. And so I wasn't super excited. Um, but uh Look, you know, at the end of the day, what I learned over time with an open mind was if you're good at selling, but you have more to sell and you can get bigger deals and you can get access to more to more uh, buyers, then, hey, that's all goodness. And so that was the thing. I mean, we're a relatively small public company. We're a $2 billion company. Um, you know, we probably had, you know, 3,000 customers or so. I don't know. Um but it was great to be able to get to those other uh, companies and go on sales calls with them and, um, and be able to position an even bigger platform. We, you know, BMC might've had 500 products, but there was really 18 or so that moved the needle. And, um, and what we did was the new, uh, you know, disruptive thing. And so when you, com- when you combine that with the rest of the platform, uh, it really told a great story. Um, and, uh, and again, if you were a great seller uh, with the right mindset, you know, you could really thrive. And so I, I did. I mean, I, I can't say I enjoyed m- myself as much as I did at Blade Logic, but my, you know, my income was incremental and made over seven figures. Um, my teams, uh, you had multiple people on my teams making 500, 800K. And it was just, it was just incredibly rewarding to, to meet that challenge. And culturally, I'm actually, you know, a little different than some on the point of view. I just appreciated the culture. I thought there was a lot of phenomenal sellers. I mean, Keith Hoskinson, one of the top reps and sold, you know, $20 million uh, deal at 
at, at Walmart and he, subs, uh, he subsequently has been at Medallia and Sprinkler. I mean, he was one of the startup guys at Cisco. I mean, so Matt Mathis, you know, was phenomenal. I mean, we had people in that sales organization who were really elite sellers. It just wasn't everywhere. I mean, you didn't see it everywhere and it wasn't cultural. It was individuals. It wasn't a cultural, intentional thing. And so what we did is we helped the organization make um, excellence intentional and that was my, that was kind of my first, um, the first time I got excited about operational excellence. Um, I would talk to John frequently. And anytime he asked John a question, if you show sincere curiosity, he'll answer your question. And he, and he would tell me about how an executive meeting went down with the CFO or how, you know, this decision around um, what we do and comp plans is going. He would help me. Uh, he would just share with me and I was eager to learn. And I started really getting into uh, how to turn around an, an operation. And if you could turn around a Titanic like that, you can turn around anything. So um, for me personally, great experience in my hometown of Houston and BMC. Um, and um, I was really proud of, of what the whole team of leaders did from Jim Drill to, to Kelly to Scott and, and Carlos Del Torre and Jeremy and Luca. I mean, it was just across the board. It was just really impressive stories. Yeah. Which is incredible because then two years back to back global number one seller closing over 20, 28 million US dollars in, in, in system <clears> automation, <throat> which is just outstanding. And for an individual that, you know, says they're not a technologist, you know, and, and with an individual that has just said that, you know, it's all about simplifying over a huge, large portfolio of products. You are obviously and clearly a master of that because, you know, that, those, those two elements, you know, you would, you would, you would assume with those two comments that you would have struggled in an environment like that. Right. You know, I, I had confidence, you know, in, in what we learn as sales leaders is, you know, success breeds success. You've got to get reps achieving success because that's where certainty comes from. You know, Tony Robbins talks about a certainty loop. And so when we experience something is when we develop certainty. And until we experience something, we just have a lot of doubt when we have doubt uh, and, and our perspective is doubting that our actions aren't as, aren't, aren't as driving as they need to be. And so, you know, I had enough experience that I had confidence and I was certain that I would be successful. So what I did is I just said, give me the biggest opportunity. What account, I don't care what account it is. You just give me the biggest one. And uh, I'll go find a way. So, you know, one year they gave me AT&T. AT&T was a big CA shop. They had, you know, they were doing around $3 million a year with BMC, which is mostly like mainframe and maintenance. And, and um, they're like, yeah, man, if you can turn this one around, we'll give, you, we'll give you a team of people, you know, a small little team, a big quota and, you know, rock on. And for me, it was a big, it was a big challenge. I'd already done it with a few other really large Fortune 10 companies in my career. And so... Um, I went in there and I figured out what the business needed, what AT&T needed. I met with individual people and I figured out what they individually needed. The company was merging with a lot of different telcos. So I figured out what these individual people needed and what they wanted, what mattered most to them, what the problems they were solving, what desired outcomes they had. And I met with my team. I brought us all together and said, look, guys, there's a deal here. We can solve those problems. We can deliver to those outcomes. And that's our mission. Our message will be the same with everybody. Everyone we meet with, it will be the same message. And we're going to put a bunch of pieces to the puzzle together. And we got 10 months to do it. And, um, you know, 10 months later, we did the largest deal in company history at BMC at the time. And um, 
for me, it was fun. It was a 60 million or $50 million deal, but um, for me, it felt no difference than different than a million dollar deal. And, and so again, when you develop certainty as a leader, and this is why I always ask my leaders, I'll only put leaders in who are masters of the craft that they are leading because the individuals that they're leading are looking to them for incremental value impact, you know? And so if you're not a master of the craft, then you shouldn't be leading people. You know, you're looking for to get out of prospecting. You're 40 years old. So you got to go take a management job. You know, is that your motivation or do you, are you a master and do you have a passion for really teaching and driving that, that. So that just started building more and more certainty uh, for me. And it also continued to validate that it was about the human beings I was selling to and me aligning what we did to the problems they're solving and the desired outcomes they had. And then just working your ass off thoughtfully across all of those different people and those power buyers and putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, so I've repeated that over the years. Um, uh, and, and it's probably the most, you know, outside of developing people and leaders, it's probably the most enjoyable thing I do, you know, in this job. Yeah. And, it's, and you mentioned there, and it's really interesting, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we spoke about the pre-sales edition that we've just released. Um, and, you know, would you say a fair comment on this is that, you know, a real good salesperson is that opportunity, that, that individual that can go out there, build great relationships and great champions, right? Identify who those good champions are and know who they need to, to obviously focus their time with, but also that just innate <clears throat> ability to be able to sniff, sniff out an opportunity and say, do you know what? We've got something here. Then you've got a great team behind you, which say, look, this is the opportunity let's talk about this. Is that, and, and do you think that's the main core part of it? Having a great team behind you and, and being opportunistic. Yeah. I mean, there's two components to your question, which, yeah, which are actually two of the most important things, which comes down to simplicity. The first you asked about building champions. You used a word that, that I, I don't particularly um, lean toward, which is relationships. Right. And, you know, um, it's not about relationships. You know, that is the, a relationship is, is how two people behave together, you know, over time, how they feel about each other. This is about getting another human being to put their reputation on the line. There's only so much political capital you have when you work at a big monolithic bureaucratic company. So how do I put my reputation on the line for you and your product? You know, um, you know, Cole and I, Cole Crawford and I, the guy from Dell, CEO of Vapor, he lives, you know, in the same area, Austin, where I live. So we run each other at the grocery store every now and then. Uh, we've seen each other at the airport. What do we do when we get together? We talked about what we did at Dell together. We talked about what he's doing at Vapor. We don't, we don't, we don't go out for barbecue and have a drink. You know, yes, if you are blessed enough by God to have the, the, uh, the relationship chops and the personality chops of Mark Musselman, you can make a friend with anybody on the planet. But I was a highly, you know, I was a highly introverted seller. And so for me, it was about if I can, really make an impact on your business and you personally, then why would you not, why would you not, you know, choose us? So that champion building intuitiveness is really critical. But the second part of your question was qualification, which is at the end of the day, respecting and realizing that your time is, is critically important, not from just a self-respect perspective, but literally when you're spending more time on deals, uh, when you're spending time on deals that you shouldn't be, you're not building pipelines. The, you know, the number one killer of a sales year is, is deals. And so that sounds counterintuitive, but 
you know, working on deals that you shouldn't be working on prevents you to build pipeline and pipeline should be our ethos. And so, you know, again, I go back to the simplicity principle. And for me, you know, medic was the health of the deal. And so part of my playbook is, and it's evolved. I mean, um, I certainly was overcomplicating things and adding too much uh, things. And uh, Fougere told me one time, it was great advice from Dan. Look, you gotta, you gotta replicate before you innovate. And I was putting so much out there because I enjoy creativity that I was overcomplicating things when I started out in leadership. And so I actually have gotten to gotten back to fewer things. And so medic is the health of the deal. That's why I never added P's and C's and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just six, it's a six item checklist that tells me, by the way, that's what a paramedic does. What's what a neurosurgeon does. They have a mental checklist from their training. And in the moment of chaos and the moment of nerves, they go back to that checklist you know, I teach my linebackers, you're about to snap. And what are your eyes on? If he does this, what do you do? And it's just a mental checklist that enables you to relax in the moment. So for me, that's how I sold. I wrote medic on my, my notebook, every sales call of my entire career. I'd start the meeting that way, M-E-D-D-I-C. And it focused me and helped me relax. And so the health of the deal tells you if you should be in that deal or not. But it also, and this is where I've, I feel like I've taken it, uh, and, and I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly what I focus on. This is telling me two things. It's telling me the health of the deal, whether or not I should stay or not. But it also tells me my deal gaps. And so we call them medic gaps. If I know the gap to good, then I can make a choice of, can I impact that gap? Can I fill that gap? Do I control over that? If I don't have control over filling that gap, that usually leads me to walk away. If I have control over filling that gap, what that drives is my deal strategy. So my medic gap tells me my deal strategy. So I have used medic and for my teams, we use it just as much as a strategy uh, guide as a qualification guide. It is not a sales process. We have a sales process, which are the stages to align with how someone buys, right? But, you know, um, qualification checklist gives me my gaps and it drives my strategy for this point in time. Maybe it's for this week. I work week to week. So we have a Friday forecast call. Last week, you said this was your gap. Here's my guidance and coaching on what you can do to fill the gap. Next Friday, tell me how it went. And when you have those milestones week to week of filling a gap, it, it simplifies the sales journey no matter how long the sales cycle is. And then I pulled that into customer success because SaaS is about upsells, getting more, you know, getting more uh, revenue over time out of the account. So now my CS team knows Medic. They've been trained in Medic. What are the gaps in this account? Is it an economic buyer alignment? Do I have a champion? Is the decision criteria, you know, not uh, centered around us? That's my gap. It drives my strategy as a CSM. And week to week, I'll inspect and coach, uh, or my leaders will inspect and coach, how do we do against filling that, um, that gap? And it drives our strategy and taking care of customers and, and getting, getting them toward value realization. My marketing team, focuses on decision criteria. If, if at the end of the day, you need to be, uh, you know, you need to be driving your decision criteria towards our unique value proposition, then my positioning and my awareness through website and content all should really be helping drive the decision criteria of our potential champions. So who are the different people that buy from us to take meetings from us, those personas, what decision criteria do they need to have to take a meeting with us and to prioritize us? So when I launched my new website in March and a new, new visual identity and new logo and all that, the positioning will be focused on decision criteria of the champion targets. So 
I've, I've just really tried to focus on the simplicity and the commitment to medic and everything we do. And, you know, it works for us. You know? Yeah. That's, that's uh, just so insightful. And so much of what you're saying there resonates with, um, with, with, with much of, you know, what we're really focusing on. But I just want to go back to one of the comments that you made, which was referring to the first part of the question, which was about the champion piece, because one of your playbook elements is about building vision-based positioning. Okay. And this is quite a unique thought process. So tell us what you mean about buyer-based messaging and how you're able to elevate company messaging using this kind of approach. Yeah. I mean, I think like many that you're probably talking to, one of the first things we have to do, especially a pipeline generation and pipeline growth is a major part of the mission at first, which it almost always is, right? Is you've got to elevate the message. Um, super blessed very early on in my career, early 2000s, to learn about the importance of message and, and having a methodology to do that through force management. And so for years, um, I, I really, you know, focused on doing that the first time, I mean, the first month uh, that I'm, 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 you know, I'm in the job. Uh, I got trained uh, by, by those folks on how to build that messaging and how to lead, facilitate the workshops. And that was really a part of my playbook. I would elevate the message as soon as it came on board. And it was really about value-based messaging. And certainly value is an important part of intellectual connection and that intellectual decision to buy. There's no doubt that value is critical. What I started seeing, again, during this time where Andy and I were trying to figure out, you know, how can we simplify this? When I'd go on sales calls, the number one problem I would see is that there was a lack of, of connection being made between the rep and the, you know, the seller and the buyer. Like they weren't connecting to what we did because we were just talking about the value that it delivered and we were talking about our differentiation. So if you think about it, those are intellectual uh, uh, connections, right? And I'm thinking, well, that makes sense. I mean, we're talking about value, we're talking about differentiators. Why wouldn't they get all excited? Why wouldn't they buy? And um, it was it was just uh, perplexing to me, you know. And I uh, basically did what I always continue to do now when I'm struggling with behaviors and habits I'm seeing with sellers. I go back to when I was a seller. And so what I was able to do was really connect what we did for companies. Zig, Zig Ziglar said said it. You know, it's not what we do; it's what we do for buyers. And so uh, I realized that. First of all, there's only so many words in the English vocabulary. So value, there's only so many things you can say about value and technologies have been advancing so much. Everybody had been adopting value-based selling, uh, whether through force or their, you know, 20 competitors. And so everyone was saying the same words, using the same ROI. And with technology advancing, everybody started having very similar differentiators or even worse, what makes this hard on all of us nowadays, it used to be that we had one or two competitors that um, could really disrupt and solve a problem. Nowadays, there's five or 10 different ways to solve the problem. I mean, you know, um, how, many, how many ways are there to manage and secure a hypercloud today, you know? Um, so um, what I realized was differentiation and value has to be critical to your messaging, but I wanna first understand how we build that emotional connection. So what I did is I actually took a year off uh, after I left Dialpad, I was a CRO at Dialpad. And, you know, I, I decided I was just going to really get some mental health. 
uh, that I needed at the time. And I um, uh, was going to really invest in learning about this mystery of why these sales calls were always so awkward. And so uh, I realized that, first of all, it starts with the profile. Yes, you got to have IQ. You got to be in, you got to have intellectual velocity to learn and adjust on the move, but you got to have EQ. You've got to be able to understand others and have a self-awareness and awareness of them and adjust to them. But the ultimate objective in that, in that, you know, person to person connection is that they first form an emotional connection. So it's the way our brains are wired, survive, thrive, and think. So think about your brain in the sequence, survive, thrive, and think. So you know, our first brains were the Neanderthal brain and it was about survival instincts. And so what does that mean in your sales messaging? I need to disarm that survival instinct, meaning I need to attach myself to the problems that you're really worried about and, um, and, and, you know, let you know that I'm not a threat. And I need to do that through my marketing content, my awareness campaigns, uh, my prospecting messaging, how I kick off a meeting and how my sales presentation kicks off. And it's just psychological it's like a password before we allow ourselves to get to this thrive part of our brain, which gets excited and we want to do things. We've got to be disarmed. And that, that was it. Objections were happening because we were challenging the buyer too soon, right? Why, why in the world would we want to challenge a perfect, uh, you know, perfect stranger before we really kind of help them understand how we align to the things they care about. So, I basically evolved the messaging into vision-based positioning. And, and it's really all about the buyer-based sell, whether it's website, whether it's our, our collateral, whether it's how we're leading a sales meeting. Vision-based positioning is very similar, but it's based, basically, in, you know, I want you to understand how we align to your, your biggest concerns, your problems you're solving, and the desired outcomes that you have. We disarm prospects that way, we disarm, we disarm buyers. And that, and that journey that we take you through, we're getting you emotionally connected to what we do because you haven't figured out what we do yet or value or ROI or differentiation, but you're thinking, wait a minute, you are attached to something that really matters to me. And now I'm listening and you put your guard down and you focus on, all right, well, take me to a happy place. And that's when we get into great stories and outcomes that we can deliver and, and even still, we're not getting into value and differentiation. And so it's all about when to talk about these things. And, 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 and that all aligns to the problems that I was having as a seller. You know, we talked about what we do, how we do it better, uh, but I wasn't, I wasn't really connecting that to the buyers. And so at the end of the day, starts with hiring profile. You got to have EQ. You got to have a high empathy for people um, to be able to, to sell this way. You got to really, really know the buyer. You got to know those personas. You got to know their world. And so you got to train that and teach that to your people. And now there's relatability, there's familiarity, and, and, and whether or not they buy from you or not, the bottom line is they're never going to get intellectually connected to your value differentiation until they're emotionally connected to you. So, you know, um, it may sound psychological and scientific and complex, but actually we just simplify it. Um, what, what does our product do uh, for, for buyers? And, and um, that's, that's been a big game changer for my teams, I think. That's so fascinating. I'll tell you what, there's probably a masterclass in just that piece there. There's so much more I would want to, want, want to talk about on that particular subject because I find it absolutely fascinating. And I think it's a, it's going to resonate a lot with a lot of the sellers out there that are listening to this podcast. Um, but you also mentioned an element of your, your playbook three, which is, you know, your sales hiring profile. Um, 
can you talk a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, I mean, I, and I would assume most of us who've kind of been raised by, um, by uh, McMahon all probably prioritize the same things. And, you know, IQ, and for me, I look for intellectual velocity. IQ is non-negotiable. You got to, you know, in the morning, you may be talking to an automotive company and e-commerce in the afternoon, you may be talking to a retailer for loyalty. So, you know, you've got all these different personas, you got to be able to be um, adjustable and understand their world. So IQ is just, you know, a a non-negotiable. I've already talked about EQ. um, But for me, uh, drive and grit. And so drive came from John helping me understand the importance of hunger. And again, folks like Tony Robbins, you'll study this in, in all types of different performance psychology that, you know, if it's all about a bias for action, and if you're not driven right now, if you're not hungry right now, that's probably why you're not succeeding. And so either you're hungry by your circumstances, like credit card debt, new baby, new mortgage, or you're hungry because you've chosen to be hungry and and you take on that identity. And either way, you can figure that out in an interview. I also uh, learned uh, from, uh, uh, you know, in the, my last few years, as I continue to learn about the importance of grit, you know, um, you know, Angela Duckworth has a great book around uh, grit and it's about resiliency. I mean, think about it. Sales, you're, you're doing good if you're successful one out of 10 times in baseball, you're a millionaire if you're successful three out of 10 times. Um, so there's a lot of disappointment, a lot of things to recover from. And even with, like great messaging and great training. Like, you know, if, you know, I I train around objection avoidance, not objection handling. Right. So even with all of that perfect plan of how it's all going to work out, you're still going to get rejected the most of the time. So, you know, resiliency and grit is something you got to see evidence of. So as I started continuing to study profile over the years of performers, and of course you got performance side of the profile, which is based on the role, but you know, these core traits, as I studied those, I realized, you know, I got to train my leaders on how to interview to this. How do you, how do you look at a, at a CV or a resume? This was a major part of force management's early playbook with us in, in, in training all of us. And then I started training leaders around it, but you know, anything that you expect as a leader, must be trained and coached, right? We all talk about measurement, of course, but anything that you expect as a leader must be trained and coached. And so if I'm expecting my, my recruiters to bring me A-plus talent that fit this profile, then I need to take the time to make sure I've documented it. It's crystal clear. It's simple. And then we've, we've talked so that you're connected to it. You get it. You're committed to it. If I don't take that investment in you, you're going to send me candidates that don't meet the profile. I'll get upset because you're not meeting my expectations. You, you, um, you, you're excited about how Andy Byron really takes time and invests with you. Well, you know what? It's because he learned that if he expects a certain output out of a recruiter, it, he better get, you know, he better get, uh, give some investment into you. And that's kind of, you know, what I felt when I was on the other end. Same thing with a manager in, a, in an interview. If, if I don't train hiring excellence, if I don't train you how to read a CV, and if I don't train you how to, to, how to, how to run a great interview, then the interview will control you. So I train, train leaders on how to control the interview. It's, it needs to be evidence-based interviewing. You know, it, it, a salesperson is inherently pretty good at one thing, selling. You know, and your job, our job is to get them great at qualification and messaging and all these other things. So I need to see evidence of that. Take the emotion out. And if we care about a certain level of experience, pipeline generation, 
I need to ask questions that help me see evidence of it. And if I can't find evidence of it in that interview, then, then I got to assume it's not there. And, you know, uh, that, that hiring excellence has been passed down. One of the best at training is Luca Lazarone. And, you know, it's just that discipline of walking away with no doubts with, with, you know, you're not being fooled that it's not there. And so you got to train how to, how to ask evidence-based questions. So, and we'll put together, and this is another Kaplan move. We'll put together a success profile in an interview profile where if there's five, you know, profile criteria, you reverse engineer questions for your leaders um, such that they'll drive evidence of that profile trait um, in the way that they ask their questions. And I find that leaders really appreciate that. Otherwise, they don't know how long to spend in, in their time management uh, of the different interviews. They don't know when to sell, when to qualify, you know, and so they're kind of winging it and then they get inefficient with, and they're getting unproductive with their time. Uh, and when they come out of that training, you know, uh, they, uh, and when they come out of those lessons learned, those coaching, they start getting really, really confident and really strong at hiring. And at the end of the day, all these great unicorn stories, it's about really great talent was on the ship. And when the great talent's there because of hiring excellence, the company's going to be just fine, you know? So it's really about leadership development and all of the expectations of what we want them to do, whether it's building pipeline, being in the forecast, working the deals, developing people. If you expect something out of a leader, you got to train and inspect to it uh, and, and coach it up. And so, you know, I learned that lesson early on. Yeah, so, so, so insightful. Um, uh, another point which I don't think we've really kind of touched on so far is, and I know it's really fundamental and actually one of your playbook elements is um, kind of a unified pipeline generation, pipeline generation kind of go to market. So it's really bringing all of the elements of pipeline generation. Um, just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, we talk about being mission oriented when you're when you're working with a new executive team or where you're working with a new company, you, you know, and you bring to them this solid mission of pipeline generation. It's pretty enlightening. You know, chief product officers, CTOs, when they come to that uh, that kind of aha moment, like, oh, we're supposed to be building product that helps you build pipeline or marketing. We're oh, we're supposed to be delivering marketing activity that helps you build pipeline, you know, and so it sounds it sounds common sense, but that's not really how a lot of software companies are built. And again, I've learned these things through making mistakes. Most good leaders have. And when I started early on, I, you know, as a seller, I'll just be, you know, uh, transparent. I would take five accounts uh, and then I would go close three of them a year for really big dollars. And I would, you know, and I'd make money. Well, when you're running a productivity engine, that's, that's not very safe. You know, you need to have an organization that consistently um, builds pipeline. And so it wasn't a strength of mine when I first started in leadership. And again, I, I worked around people that taught me and uh, nobody's better at a pipeline generation system that Jeremy Duggan, nobody's better at it than Dan Fougere. I mean, just really running a PG operating rhythm. And so learning that uh, was, was so critical and I felt the pain of it early on in my leadership career. So as I evolved into more of an operational leader, I've taken certainly in sales, it's about having a PG operating rhythm. And then again, if you expect pipeline generation consistency and excellence, you got to train to it, you got to coach to it. Um, but 
uh, that operating rhythm at weekly and how you lead uh, the quality of the work and, and, and all that is critical. But I actually learned that why stop there? You know, there's there, in SAS, there's many other um, many other resources, essentially three other resources that should be being able to help you build pipeline partner organizations was not a part of the early startup culture. I mean, if you sold something disruptive, you know, the reality is partners couldn't sell that. They didn't know your message. I mean, we would sit there at the, at the Boston Hilton for freaking two days learning our four core differentiators at Blade Logic. I mean, it takes a long time to really get your differentiation. So we thought of partners as, you know, an annoyance. What we learned is when you're, when what you're selling has an ecosystem of partners, then you can really systematically build pipeline through that network. So I've you know, been a part of several elite leaders, uh, Mike Kane, Patrick West, who have helped me build you know, really successful partner programs, $30 million par- you know, partner programs. And, and that, that is, should be a source of pipeline for your direct team. But even in marketing, we focus on, like I said, decision criteria and champions. So there's a lot of things that you can do in marketing. And what I've learned is a lot of marketers, with all due respect, a lot of them focus on how much, how big their budget is and how many things that they can do, like a check in the box, like we should do this, we should do that. What I really ask and challenge is what will build the awareness that, that needs to happen around the decision criteria that leads a champion to take a meeting with us? What do we need to do around that awareness through content and, and how frequent that doesn't need to be? Is it a couple of big pieces of content? Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, once a quarter, or is it something, some piece of content every day, figuring that out, that awareness content was what we all lacked at Blade Logic. It's what we all lacked at everywhere we sold. We were the ones creating awareness in the market, you know, the reps. And um, that was a painful lesson, demand generation and how we do it systematically, the excellence and the cadence of how we do it. Why shouldn't it be under the same type of operating rhythm with rigor and measurement and process um, as we have in sales and leading indicators? And so that's my marketing playbook. And that's what we really believe in. And I hire a talent and they, they do less to get more out. And in, six, in customer success, that PG mission is all about value realization. So my teams focus on you know, the mission, which is value realization. And if, it's, and if we don't know how to drive value based on what we sell, we don't, then we got to train them. And so we certify them on value, value realization playbooks. And, and then we, and, and we hire to a profile of people that can teach and guide um, big enterprises, you know, big stakeholders. And all of that results in this systematic building of pipeline. And it happens pretty fast here at Vibes. In my seven months, we've grown pipeline 50%. That's because of my team, you know, and, and how they've executed. But it's been intentional. It's not accidental. And that's what I learned uh, working around people who were just better at it than I was in, back in the day. Um, so, yeah, the, the PG mission is, is, is just so critical. It can't be minimized. I'd say that and your, and your medic, um, you know, your medic focus and a buyer focused go to market. Those are probably the three, you know, that and hiring profile, probably the four most important things that you focus on. So mm-hmm. it's, How- it's critical. Yeah. How, how integral is the SDR function when it comes to pipeline generation? Is it, you know, the. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a re- religious question for a lot of people. You know, we never had, I was a BDR when I left coaching um, and I, and I learned a lot, uh, uh, but we never had that when we were reps, you know, we never had anything like that. At the very end of blade logic, we just hired a bunch of former college athletes and they're all, 
you know, a lot of them are very successful today. Dalton, Dalton Van Hatcher and, you know, Mike, uh, you know, there's some really, really cool stories there, but we didn't really build a lot of pipeline from them. And it's because, you know, connecting, like emotionally connecting with an executive or mid-level buyer at a big enterprise, it takes a level of maturity and it, it takes a level of empathy that comes from experience. Empathy is something you can learn. It can be coached. IQ can't be coached. Can't change what mama made, you know, but EQ is something that you can learn and grow. And so when you're 22, 23 years old, you just, you just lack experience. You may be empathetic, but you struggle to have the empathy to really be able to emotionally connect. So you talk about your product and your features and differentiation. What I have learned or what I have found personally is to really maximize that investment. I have them in the demand gen uh, process. And, and so if I'm going to spend all this money on outreach and content that's flowing out in this engine and this daily outreach, account-based marketing to the right awareness content um, into the right personas with the right content. If I'm going to invest all that money, then one thing we learned is people don't take meetings unless humans interact with them. So you've got to have the systematic outreach of those BDRs to those campaigns, to the content that goes out. And it happens over time. No one just takes a meeting with you because you have some magic message the first time. You have to nurture it. You got to get familiarity, survive, thrive, and think, right? That human buyer has to develop familiarity with you. They have to realize you're not a threat. So that human being reaching out over time with messaging that really relates to you and is familiar to you, it disarms you. And eventually, you know, that intellectual connection says, I'll take a meeting with you. But that has to be... Uh, it has to be nurtured through a human being. And I find, you know, those future uh, superstar sellers and pulling them out in their career where they don't have a lot of bad habits, putting them into those roles early on in, in that demand gen team is incredibly effective. And then some of them move into sales and develop. Some of them believe they have a passion for marketing and they go that way. But, you know, it's part of, it's kind of part of our unique playbook, I think, and our emphasis. And, and you know, if I talk about my playbook as a marketer that's that's a big part of it you know and does does medic come into play at sdr level or do you did you integrate that's that qualification methodology <clears throat> that early yeah you know i've encountered a lot of bdr sdr programs that teach methodology like bant or medic and that kind of thing and to me it's noise i mean there is no opportunity to qualify i'm trying to get somebody to stop looking listen and then i want them to take a meeting with one of my reps that's all I'm really trying to do. It's about the mission. And so if the mission is, how do you stop, look, and listen? I got to create an emotional connection with you so that I can get to an intellectual connection. That's what I'm trying to do over time. So that's what I teach them. I teach them that messaging and that, and that positioning. So typically, no one knows the positioning and the messaging of the company better than you know, a, the good B, a good BDR team because they're the ones really driving it every day. And then um, once that connection is made, it's just simply asking do you, you know, do you have a bias for action to take a, take a meeting with our rep? And why would you take a meeting with somebody? Why you? I mean, you know, Ollie, you're busy, man. Why would you take a meeting with somebody? It's because you eventually realize this is not a threat to me. This could potentially help me. And um, it could potentially take my business where I want it to go. And there's only a few things that could do that. And so you've connected to that. I'll take a meeting with you. So for, for, for my team, it's just really owning that message you know, and being able to position and position that message in a way that creates those connections. And then, you know, you start getting, you start getting your discovery meetings. That's not an opportunity. It's a discovery meeting. That's all we're really trying to drive. And then it's on the field to really qualify over time 
Uh, and if, if they get, if they have a qualified deal and then start focusing on their gap, start focusing on building champions. And that's a hard job, man. We pay, you know, we pay reps a lot of money nowadays to do that. And so I put that on, I put that on the field, you know? Amazing. Thank you. So going back to your career, so we've gone 2009, 2010 entered into obviously the BMC acquisition as a global account manager and made it into a first line manager role um, at BMC. Um, then shortly after that, well, two years after that, um, took on an area vice president role over at um, Medallia, which obviously you've mm-hmm. spoken about in some detail. Um, talk about that transition, you know, moving now into, you know, second line, third line management. Yeah. You know, just personally, that was a tough decision for me, man. I, 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 I'm very loyalty driven, you know, as you can imagine, when you don't grow up with a lot of, you know, um, leadership influences in your life, no influences, when you find people that are really impactful and they care about you, you know, you develop loyalty. So here I was going through a whole career with John McMahon, who, to be honest with you, he's, you know, um, probably, you know, two most important people in my entire life in my early development uh, next to my mom. I mean, he's just really invested in me and he's any, and you know, he really put his money where his mouth was at times. And, and he, you know, he was huge. And so then I had a guy named Scott Davis, who was a great friend and he invested in me. And so here I am. And I'm like, you know, I've got a couple of different decisions at the time of where to go. And so there was one that was a company who's now a $500 million company going public next year. They were a million in revenue that year based out of New York. And for me, I kept hearing in my, in my head, something John had taught me a long time ago, if you're going to go into leadership, you better be set up for success. And so I just didn't feel set up for success going to do a early, early startup in New York. Um, and so Medallia was one where it was 30 million. It's a business sell. I tend to lean more towards a business sell. And Steve Wosky had just joined the board. He was chairman uh, at Blade Logic and at PTC. And so I met with Steve in San Francisco and I'll never forget it. He's a quirky guy, super Mensa, and he's sitting there drinking soup out of a cup without a spoon. And I'm like, I'd never seen that before. And um, <laughs> and he just really simplified it. Steve was big on commitment, you know. And he said, "Look, when you're committed, that's when you that's when you really do great things. Don't be half in, you know. It's all about commitment. So a lot of that comes from Steve too. And you know, it it was a great it was a you know it was a it was a great journey, and um, it was my first time taking that leap to go do my blade logic. We were all looking for our blade logics, you know, um, and um, and just immense immense amount of learning. Very successful bookings growth. We took it from thirty to ninety million in two years over a billion dollar valuation. Um, built out multiple you know um, you know leaders. And the sales team. Um, that's where I, you know, that's where I uh, developed my first CRO. I took, you know, one of the things I take a lot of pride on is developing future CROs and future VPs. I got three CROs out there, multiple VPs out there. And that was where I met my first rep I hired, who's now a successful CRO and um, just learned a lot, man. I hired the best, in my opinion, one of the best reps from Blade Logic and Amy Gustafson. Um, and I was surrounded by one of the best uh, reps I've ever seen and Jane Thompson, who came from PTC. And so I learned and, and, and we did great. But when John called me about um, Fuse, it was called Thinking Phones at that time. Um, uh, and, you know, and Andy had just joined and, and, um, and I heard the names that were getting recruited there, uh, you know, in Europe. I, um, it was different. It was an opportunity for me to really advance and grow. And I didn't see that medallion. That, that's what was fulfilling me. And plus, you know, and the mistakes that I made it, 
Madaya. I, I was ready for, you know, it was a good time for a fresh start. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a great transition because I like Madaya and every leader. And I tell you this because every leader should have their own story. They're going to have their own story, but they should all have the awareness that if you're not intentionally growing, that means you got to take risks. If you're not intentionally growing, you're not going to grow. You're just going to be another sales manager. And, um, you know, I, I took risks and, and really made mistakes and had a lot of success and I grew. And so then because of the pain and the mistakes, and don't get me wrong, we had a lot of success in Medallia, but I was able to really thrive at Fuse. And we took it from uh, one rep, just like it, you know, Medallia took it from one rep to multiple VPs and, you know, dozens of reps. Uh, and, um, you know, we were just killing our number, you know, um, and, um, and grew that into, you know, from 30 to 140 million in three years and, and a, you know, a billion dollar plus valuation. So, Again, you start building certainty when you have experiences repeated, repeated over and over again. And then I just challenge myself and go on a new thing. So that was the journey from, you know, Medallia yeah. Fuse, you know. So just to fill in the gaps for the audience there. So that was Medallia 2012 to 2014 as an area vice president and then took on a vice president of sales <laughs> role um, in 2014 and went to VP Worldwide Field Operation all the way up into SVP of Worldwide Services and Revenue Operations, um, which was quite a, a quick transition up to you know senior level in just two and a half years. So um, great career trajectory there. Um, I got one question, yeah, which, yeah. which is, which is quite interesting, which is kind of like when we talk about, you know, not every person, not every good salesperson and top salesperson is able to transition into management because, you know, there is a, a I suppose a, one of the drivers of being a top salesperson is the fact of being a top salesperson. When you step into first, second, third line management, then you obviously have to allow other people to take that limelight and you have to take a, you know, a bit of a backstage position. Obviously you've done that very successfully well, but can you talk to us and how you were able to do that? And well, I mean, first it started with, started with leadership, you know, mentoring me, you know, I always wanted to manage. I always wanted to lead. I was one of those reps. And uh, it's funny, I have those reps today and I can tell them, you know, share the same lessons and, and, you know, I knew and John knew that I was going to be a successful leader. He knew my coaching background. He knew my teaching passion. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the first lesson is, you know, you should never leave life-changing money on the table, you know, and I was, I would have done that had I gone into management too soon. You know, you know, Kelly Connery said, you should never go into management until you're not worried about paying the light bill. And um, why is that? it's because it has to be about them, not about you. The other thing I learned is, you know, assuming you're financially free, you got to get to a point where when it's Sunday night, working into Monday morning, all you're thinking about is serving and the people on your team and making them better. And if you're all only thinking about winning the next deal and you're not really passionate about serving the people on your team and making them better, then your, your motivation, is gonna is gonna affect your habits and behaviors, and so your mindset is what drives your habits and behaviors. You know, and um, if your mindset's not right for leadership, then your habits and behaviors will 
make a negative impact, not a neutral impact. They'll make a negative impact on your team. The best thing that ever happened to me at Blade Logic is I didn't have consistent management. I didn't have management that was really working with me heavily because had I had poor management or people that had the wrong mindset and for the wrong reasons, it would have actually, you know, stunted my own growth. Um, I would have much preferred a great leader to work with me a lot, but, uh, yeah, I think that was the that was the biggest set of lessons. And then after that, like I said, you know, you know, you have to establish a vision of what good looks like. Leadership to me is establishing a vision of what good looks like, a plan of how they get there, and then developing them towards the plan, and then inspiring them every day uh, because that that plan's pretty hard, right? And so leaders have to learn to be intentional about those things. You do that to a team, and then you also have to do that for individuals. That takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy, and all your individuals are at different levels. Um, so I learned a lot, and then now where I've evolved a lot of my passions is the second-line leaders. No one ever trains second-line leaders. No one ever tells you what to do different in a second-line leader. So that's a big part of, of my passion. Those guys that are CROs or VPs now, I mean, we, we used to talk intentionally about what it means to be a VP, what it means to be second line. And, um, the expectations, uh, have changed. And, you know, that to answer your question, that that's my, that's my uh, mindset and philosophy on leadership. And I do my best to try to train to it the best I can hire to it the best I can. But to me, Everything in this business, uh, for it to be successful here at Vibes or anywhere else, revolves around the quality of the leaders that we hire. Mm. Yeah, and that's such a common trait across every single person that we've spoken to out of the 33 CXOs. So, yeah, Mm. thanks for that. Mm. So, April 2017, you actually ventured into your first CRO, well, officially CRO title, which was at Dialpad. Um, How did you find the... how difficult was the step up from previous leadership roles to being the head, you know, of the sales organization as a CRO? Well, I mean, obviously every career step is different. Um, there were so many similarities um, and that's, and that's about setting yourself up for success. So much of what we did there and what, what did we do now is instinctual because we'd done it before, you know, we'd built multiple billion dollar, you know, growth companies and, you know, um, the anytime you have incremental lessons, no matter who you talk to, um, you know, probably more off camera, they're going to share, you know, the mistakes that they made in that first role. Um, but I love learning, man. I, 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 you know, I don't mind looking like the jackass, uh, because if it helps me grow and it helps me a better professional father and, and, and husband, man, all good. Right. So, you know, I, I did my best, um, you know, in that first role, to figure out what are the incremental things, but the things that I'm intentional about now as, uh, as an executive leader are because mistakes that I made there, the things that I was so good at at Fuse are because of mistakes I made before. So, you know, you're a part of an executive team now. So a lot of what would go through my head were things that Luca Lazarone and John McMahon had taught me about alignment amongst an executive team. You're not talking to a rep when you're talking to a CFO or a founder, you know, you can't, you know, lead by command and control, man. You know, you got to really drive and you learn so much about commitment versus compliance. You know, Cedric and I are, Cedric Pesh and I are real passionate about this commitment versus compliance, you know, and uh, getting a rep to be committed to leading indicators and activity uh, for PG versus just making them feel like they've got to do it. Same thing. 
with an executive team. All these things we want to do in enterprise sales and growth, they all cost a lot of money. And um, oftentimes it means also letting a lot of people go because they don't meet profile and, you know, they're not going to set us up for success. And so for all these changes, which are very uncomfortable, how do you get executives to feel aligned to it? How do they get committed to it? So um, from the mistakes that, you know, you make in executive roles, you learn how to drive alignment how to drive commitment that, and I talk about the, you know, the commitment path, it's purpose, plan, and promise for me to get committed to something. I, I need to understand the purpose of it. Then I need to understand the plan of how we're going to get there, a law of attribution. And then I need, need to understand the promise of what I'm going to get in return. If sales leaders talk to CFOs that way, they would have far less friction, you know? Um, but, you know, I didn't always do that up front. We got to do it this way. That's what we did before create a million billion dollar company. What are you stupid? You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, you learn. You really learn a lot about alignment and commitment amongst an executive team, and you also start appreciating company culture more. Look, man, at Blade Logic, company culture was John and Dave um, driving um, performance. That was it, and um, and you're spoiled in an environment like that. But when you take on executive leadership roles, and I'm staying in an apartment downtown San Francisco, um, the culture and spending time with those people and creating trust and being intentional about trust um, becomes incredibly important because they're watching you make change and you assume they all want the change. Maybe they're happy. They're making a salary. They're totally happy. They don't understand why you're making the change. Um, they're not sitting in the board meetings, you know, they're not, they don't know what Mark Andreessen's thinking about. They just care about, they're making a paycheck. And so, um, you know, you learn about the importance of company culture and investing in them. And what you have is you start building company champions at Vibes. I can honestly say, I probably have a lot more champions outside of my org than I have inside the org because they're seeing positive things that are impacting them personally. Well, I mean, I try to invest in that now. So being intentional about trust building, Stephen Covey has a great book called The Speed of Trust and being intentional about understanding how to build trust. All of those things, alignment, commitment, and trust at an executive and cultural level, all completely new when you're a CRO. You know, that is not, uh, that is not what you're experiencing first and second line sales management. So again, great, great learning experience uh, for me and it's helped me, you know, with my instincts today. So October 2018, you then made your move. Well, actually, there was a gap between Dialpad and Monotate, which is when you actually had a bit of time to set up your own your, your own kind of business, which again touched on one of your passions, which is you know training and uh, and coaching. And tell us a little bit about uh, about that time. Yeah, I started Gin now um, because I really felt like. I was motivated to um, to uh, lean into the things, two things that I really had a lot of passion for, which was which is people development and um, operational excellence, meaning more more than just sales execution, but really running a great software company. And so, I um, I, I had no idea how long I would do that, but I did it, and and it enabled me to invest a lot of time in learning and reading and studying. Uh, all of those questions that Andy and I would try to, you know, answer over a glass of wine, it enabled me to take some time to, to really study it and learn it and, and figure out, you know, why do sellers freeze up on meetings? Why do they say things that create objections? Why do, 
why do buyers get so annoyed by sellers, you know? Um, and, 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 you know, why does marketing never make the impact on pipelines? So it enabled me to really, really dive in and learn. And, and so, um, you know, it was a fun year. I had um, some really cool gigs and, and one of my customers um, was, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a MarTech company called Monetate. And Stephen, the CEO, had been a CEO here in Austin uh, for Bizarre Voice. And, you know, Stephen and I really hit it off. Um, and, um, you know, John doesn't know I know this, but I mean, if it weren't for Kaplan on the back end, you know, I probably would have never gotten, uh, you know, that introduction. But, um, but you know, as, as, and then I realized I missed the locker room, man. I, I really missed it. And I'm, and, and I, and when I say locker room, I don't mean from, you know, a metaphor of, you know, a bunch of males in a, in a, in a boys club. I really mean from a bunch of athletes working together toward a common goal. I didn't have my whole life in sports and I miss that. And um, I'm still, still loving it. I still wake up every day and I can't wait to go to work. And, and that passion still drives me. But, you know, again, this was a mentoring moment. I called Kaplan and John Kaplan and so, man, I need to kind of, I'm at a tipping point. Wife is getting nervous. I'm running this business and I need to decide if I continue to do this and I don't want to compete with you. And he'd been, you know, he'd been, you know, giving me some advice during that time. And he's like, look, man, you just, you need to figure out your purpose and what fulfills you. And, and, and it, and it made it really clear that for me to get great uh, at the things that I cared about um, and I, I needed to go back to operating and someday I might go back to the advisory side of things and consulting. I certainly love it. Um, but for now, uh, this has been a you know, phenomenal couple of jobs for me and I'm, and I'm having a blast and I got surrounded by people that make me smarter and better. So yeah, that, it was a good, it was a really good time for me to take, take a little, uh, breather. Incredible story, incredible journey. And then obviously June two 2020. So, uh, you know, early last year, Right in the middle of a of a global pandemic, you join Vibes as the CRO, which brings us to the present day. So, um, yeah. yeah, amazing. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a great time to join. I mean, I join and they're like, yeah, two of our customers are going bankrupt. You know, oh, oh, third one just went bankrupt. So it's like, great, <laughs> awesome. You know, but uh, yeah, man, it was it's actually a great time. Digital engagement, mobile engagement, personalized. Um, you know, uh, you know, marketing and loyalty and commerce engagement with a consumer couldn't be a better time to be in the space. You know, um, during my seven months here, we've had 700%, uh, you know, uh, higher performance than they did the first half of the year. So a lot of that is the playbook and excellence, excellence and execution. But um, a lot of it is just the validation that the market really cares about what we're doing. Um, pipeline's growing. So, um, Again, good leadership team, great CEO, and um, something that's really aligned to what I what fulfills me. So it's 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 been good. Yeah, I, I suppose you are literally at the you know the cutting edge of customer engagement in terms of the organization that you're working. And it's interesting that you also apply a, a sales method, well, a playbook, and a qualification methodology, and a sales and a, mm-hmm. an enablement philosophy, which is. 30 odd years old at a company which started at a company called PTC. Do you think that there is a chance that this playbook can become obsolete and can become, uh, re- can be replaced by the cutting edge kind of technologies that you're obviously now, you know, bringing to the world? 
You know, when I get asked questions like that, I always say that's kind of a God question, man. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's, I don't know what's going to go down. I was on the phone with Tesla yesterday and like, you know, someone who reports to Elon Musk and I, she's telling me all about these crazy stories of how his mind works and all these decisions that he makes and like what he wants to do with the world. And I'm like, cool, man. I, I don't really know about that. All I know is that we have never sold the companies. Uh, we sold the buyers and to this day and in the future, I still predict that, you know, we don't sell the companies we sell to people. And, um, and as long as people are buying from us in any type of uh, structure, context, go to market, you know, I think you're going to need to qualify your time uh, because there's a lot of opportunity out there. And I think you're going to need to have people selling on your behalf. So a champion based sell, uh, I don't see that going away, at least in my world, enterprise, complex, high cost platforms, you know. Um, and, you know, I don't ever, ever see any company buying something because there's not an initiative uh, associated with it and, and uh, pain and problems associated with that initiative. No one just buys something because there has to be an initiative and, you know, pain that, that, that really uh, addresses it. So the bottom line is, um, you know, it is simple. And it is the health of the deal. You'll never see me add another letter to it. You know, I got enough <laughs> things complicating the world. There's enough things complicating, you know, things from, from, from my team. Um, it's the health of the customer, the health of the deal. And it is bottom line. I learned this in coaching, you know, you know, it's not about whether you're a four, three defense or three, four, your attack or your read or all this kind of stuff. Do you have a system? Are you committed to it? And does everything that you do, anchor to it. When you start having incongruence in what you expect and ask of your people, they notice it and it, it doesn't align. It doesn't, it, it's not fitting a puzzle. And then they start getting uncertain. And when people get uncertain, they pause, they stop. And so, uh, you know, I, I love it. And, you know, I don't see it going anywhere in terms of the fundamentals of pipeline generation, hiring profile, uh, medic, and, uh, you know, uh, sales process control. So um, for me, it's just about learning from others who do something incremental um, uh, to make it better and stronger, you know. So I, I suppose that the, this probably brings us to kind of a bit of a natural conclusion, um, actually, to come to, to the very final question, which is, in your opinion, does the hunter make the unicorn? Oh yeah. Yeah. You guys are famous for that question. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, in my world, in my career, um, uh, it, it begins and ends with, with, with people. Um, and in terms of the journey to a really successful growth company now, um, you know, I can understand the argument that will actually be begins with, with a product. Um, but, um, you know, there, there is a hunter in every founder. Okay. Um, uh, you know, Ben Horowitz, uh, and, and Bessemer and Sequoia, you know, they, they've all studied founders and the psychology of a founder and the good, the good ones are pretty hungry. They're pretty driven. Um, they're pretty high IQ, um, get a lot of grit and resiliency. And, um, question is, do they have the guidance around them of how to find the right executives? Um, uh, I'm not an expert on Snowflake, but I've known about it. I've, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, known about Snowflake since they were pre-revenue, and I'm sure it's phenomenal, disruptive, game-changing, uh, you know, in, in the data world. But the Snowflake becomes Snowflake without Chris Degnan, 
who, who puts opportunity over position. And he says, yeah, man, at EMC, I learned some stuff. And uh, I think, you know, I'm pretty confident myself. I've got some certainty, but he had the humility to say, it's not about my role. I'm going to go be a, the rep. I'm going to go be the rep and I'm going to go make this happen. And it was the combination of that hunter. And in my opinion, probably, and I don't know the founders of, of, of Snowflake, but I certainly know uh, folks on the board, but it was the combination of, the, of that grit and resiliency of that whole team that said, let's go, let's go turn this into a pipeline. And then they said, okay, let's turn this pipeline into qualified deals. And then let's go turn these deals into customers. And then let's go turn small customers into big customers. That journey is driven by people. It's driven by, for lack of a better term, hunters, you know. But um, it, it's the same story at AppD, Zscaler, Dolly, and all these other places. It's, you know, uh, it really comes down to, to the people in my belief. Uh, and that is certainly no disrespect or minimizing the technology, but, uh, but it doesn't sell itself. And, and, um, and in the big enterprises, man, there's so many options they have to solve their problems. And there's, and there's a lot of mixed messages out there. So uh, you don't have a lot of leverage nowadays in, in, in selling. So uh, I'm, I'm very passionate about doing anything I can to help find and develop the, the hunters of the world. And, um, and uh, you know, the unicorns are a fun journey uh, to be a part of for sure. But, the, it, but you feel an ownership when, when Adam Aaron stood on the stage of NASDAQ when Octa went public. I mean, he had chills in his stomach, you know what I mean? And, you know, he looked around to the right or left. He didn't see a software product. He saw people, you know, so... That's that's what I love about this business. So. Love that. What a fantastic answer that was. Incredible. That was. So this is the point where we summarize on what we've heard today. Uh, and I think if I was to best summarize what, to, what the theme of today is, I think um, teaching and learning is probably the most fundamental part of what we've heard today. I, I probably we've probably heard the word learning and teaching more than any other words that have been said in today's podcast. And I think that the reason for that is because you speak, you talk about IQ, you talk about EQ, but I also think you've got this intellectual curiosity of how to master, how to achieve that mastery that you need, how to find those answers that you need to be able to create what you refer to as that certainty. And once you actually start to see the success, you really, your, your intellectual curiosity continues to manifest in a way where you're constantly seeking the answers and the formulas, which enable you to then pass on that teaching to others in, in, in the way that you obviously want to help others to then take their careers. And you, you speak a lot about that kind of incremental growth. And, and I think what's evident in your career is that by reflection, by your own admittance, you've never seen yourself as the most natural salesperson. You've never seen yourself as the most tech savvy, but you've been able to really understand the, the the kind of the bits that bring it all together and, and and that's enabled you to have that incremental growth to build the hunters that are building the unicorns of the future so i really want to take this opportunity to say you know a really big thank you it's been absolutely fascinating so uh, intriguing so much substance and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today 
Yeah. Well, thank I mean, you. first of all, you're welcome, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Ollie. No, I was just about to reflect a lot, but Simon articulates it so much better than I do. But no, it's just been absolutely a pleasure. I have been fascinated throughout this entire podcast. And I know there's going to be so much for our listeners to take on board and, you know, to take away from this. So thank you so much for sparing the time to talk to us, Richard. It's been truly inspirational. Oh, it's, same here, man. I love people who have a thirst for mastery like the two of you. And I love what you're doing. And you know, um, I just uh, uh, enjoyed it thoroughly. And you guys are class acts. So thanks for having me on. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you very much, Richard. Much appreciated. So to our viewers and to our Cheers. listeners, we hope you've enjoyed today's show. Please remember to subscribe, comment, share, like. We'd love to hear from you. There's lots and lots of content available on our website. So please do check out so soap.com forward slash blog. And please do join us for another session soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, everyone.